Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amanda Neppel, and I am one of the pastors out at the West Des Moines campus. I head up women's ministry out there, and I had the pleasure of serving uh, here at Hope Des Moines uh, a while ago. And so thank you uh, for having me back, and thank you for letting me be here today. Whenever John asks me, I always say yes. Resounding yes, I would love to be there. Uh, this morning I did the chapel service out at West Des Moines at uh, 8.30 and then just dropped everything and said, I got to go. I'll see you guys later. So now I'm here. Anyway, yeah, woo! <laughs> so that clip that you just saw was from the movie The Princess Bride. And that movie came out in 1987. I was 12 years old and that was my most favorite movie. And I would watch it over and over and over. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that we only had three channels uh, where I lived. We lived out in the country and there was literally nothing else to watch. But I watched that movie over and over and over again. And there are some really iconic lines from that movie that I'm sure many of you are saying in your head. And that's totally fine. And uh, that's great. So uh, anyway, the, the reason I showed you that clip is because that character, uh, Indigo, the one played by Mandy Patinkin, the, the guy with the scars on his face, Indigo, Inigo, excuse me, has spent his entire life waiting for the minute when he would be able to get revenge. And he has built up everything in his life so that he uh, can continue looking for this six-fingered man who killed his father. And so he has spent, up his, spent his whole life looking for that man studying sword play, studying fencing, so that when he finds that man, he will be able to take his revenge. It's all he's been thinking about for 20 years. And it's a kid's movie, so it doesn't really go all the way into how deep and how dark and how terrible that is. Uh, but it does remind me of Haman from uh, Esther, who you just heard read about uh, just a couple of, of moments ago. Haman, Haman, honestly, I'm not totally sure how you say it. I don't think any of us does. I'm gonna say Haman uh, because that's how I learned and if I have to try and learn a new name, it's not gonna go very well. So I'm gonna refer to him as Haman. Uh, but we've been going through the book of Esther the entire month of July. And today we're in this kind of little side story, if you will, uh, that kind of takes place. It's kind of separate from all the action, but it's really also really integral and important to what's going on here. So if you'll bear with me for a minute, I want to just set the stage here for you so we can tie kind of all these stories together to help us get where we are today. So the characters that we're talking about, we've got um, Esther. And Esther, maybe you don't know this, she was the original winner of the first original Bachelor. And <laughs> it's, it's really icky and really gross. It's as bad as it seems. And then there's Xerxes over there, the one with all the bling. Uh, he's the king. And then right below them is Haman. We'll come back to him. And then right below Esther is Mordecai. Mordecai, these are, um, this is from the movie One Night with the King, which does an okay job of telling the story. Not awesome, but it gets the job done. Anyway, so Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he kind of becomes her de facto parent. Uh, uh, her parents die, and so Mordecai brings Esther into his home. He's the one who tells her, when you get into the palace, you can't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Uh, and so he is, he raises Esther. Mordecai also works outside the palace. And he um, then sees everybody coming and going. He hears a lot of things. And so Mordecai hears about a plot that two men have come up with where they are going to attempt to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai hears about this. He tells Esther what he's learned. Esther tells the king, the plot is discovered to be true. The two guys who are going to kill Xerxes actually end up 
on a pole, and it is as bad as it sounds. Actually, it's probably worse than it sounds. Um, but that's what happens to them. And um, Esther tells Xerxes that it was Mordecai who discovered this plot. And so Mordecai um, is at least given some credit for that. At that time, at least it's written down that Mordecai did it. Now, remember, nobody knows that Mordecai and Esther are related. So enter Haman into this story. Haman is the second most powerful man in all of Persia. He is basically an extension of Xerxes. And so because of that, Xerxes has said, hey, this is my right-hand guy. This guy, Haman here, is an extension of me. So when you see him, you must treat him with the same respect that you treat me. So when you see him, you need to bow down to him. That's what you do for Haman. And Mordecai, being a Jewish person and following God's teachings, he's like, well, he's not the king and he's not God. So no, I'm not going to bow. Mordecai will not bow. And he, as I said, works outside the palace. So there's a lot of opportunity for Haman to walk by and Mordecai to not bow. And every time Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman goes more and more like crazy angry with Mordecai. And Haman is the type of person for whom nothing is ever good enough. Haman's the type of person who believes that the world owes him something. Haman's the type of person who, even though he is the second most powerful person in the Persian empire, it's not enough. And Haman has spent his whole life nursing his anger towards uh, the Israelites, um, the Jewish people, because there's centuries old stuff that's going on there. But he has basically decided that the reason of anything that's wrong in his life is because of the Jewish people in particular. And Mordecai specifically, because every single day, at least once a day, Mordecai infuriates him by not bowing down to him. And Haman has gone so far down this slippery slope that Haman doesn't even have a chance of even just like ignoring it. It has gone way too far. He has gone way too far down the rabbit hole of bitterness and anger, and there is no coming back for Haman at this point. And so, if you remember then what's been going on, right, um, Haman, because he hates Mordecai, because he hates the Jewish people, he decides that it's not going to be enough just to, just to take care of Mordecai. He has to go after the entire Jewish nation. And so, he comes up with this idea that he, and he kind of tricks, kind of manipulates Xerxes into signing this into law, that there will be a day several months out from where they are now, but there will be a day where all of the Jewish people in all of the Persian Empire can be, can be murdered, can be killed by, uh, by people living in Persia who just don't like Jewish people. And so this is really the crux of Esther, right? This is really what's going on here. This is why Mordecai says to Esther, this plan has been put in place, and for some reason, you're the queen, and I'm starting to think that maybe the reason you're the queen is so you can do something about this mess of a decree that Xerxes has put into law because Haman manipulated him in to doing it. And so Esther realizes through Mordecai that maybe she has been called for this type, for this, this very reason, for this exact situation. And so Esther has a choice. She has to decide if she's going to risk her own life. And it is risking her life to go before the king uh, when she hasn't been summoned. And so she does it. <clears throat> she, she goes before the king. She risks her life. She goes into the courtyard uh, and, and presents herself to Xerxes. And good news for Esther, she gets to keep her head attached to her body, so that's really going to be helpful for the rest of what's going to happen. And so 
she says to Xerxes, Xerxes, hey, I am throwing a banquet, and I would really love it if you and Haman would come to my banquet. And so Xerxes says, of course, Esther, I gave you the rose, and I will come to your banquet. That's a bachelor joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I don't watch The Bachelor, but my teenage kids have gotten into it, so I feel like I have to watch it so I can clean that whole mess up for them. Whatever. So anyway, uh, so Xerxes says, yes, Haman and I would be happy to come to your banquet. And so they do. And they go to Esther's banquet, which she has prepared for them. And she is preparing to tell um, Xerxes then about this plan that Haman has come up with. Except for here's the thing. That first night that they're together, she kind of chickens out. And she doesn't ever really get the words out to tell Xerxes, hey, your buddy Haman here kind of tricked you into doing this thing, and I'm going to end up getting killed and all my people. She chickens out. And I imagine after that happens, she has to just be like kicking herself, right? Like when they left, she had to spend the rest of that evening thinking, oh, I failed. I'm not who Mordecai thinks I am. I screwed this up. But at least she'd had the ability to invite them back to a banquet the very next night. So she has to be thinking, okay, I screwed this up, but I got one more shot. They're both going to come back, okay? <clears throat> so in this story, in this book of Esther, in this um, this passage that has been given to us. The book of Esther doesn't ever mention the name God. You guys have heard that. The book of Esther, the name of God does not come up even one time. But coincidences abound in this book. Things just happen to come together all over the place. So where Esther feels like she failed, as we're going to see, God uses these circumstances probably to seal Haman's fate. What ends up happening to Haman may not have actually happened if it hadn't been for uh, the way that Esther didn't quite get the words out that night, but invites him back the second night. So here's what happens. They leave. Haman leaves the banquet. And you guys, he is just tickled with himself. He is so proud of himself because he goes home and he says, wife, staff, people who are standing here, you are not going to believe how much King Xerxes loves me. King Xerxes loves me so much, and not only that, Queen Esther loves this guy. Queen Esther loves this guy so much that not only did she invite me to her banquet tonight, she invited me back over to a banquet tomorrow night because that's how awesome I am. Except for there's one thing. As he was leaving, he happened to see Mordecai. And because of who Haman is, because nothing's ever good enough, because he sees everything through a filter that tells him somebody's holding out on him, when he sees Mordecai, he's infuriated. And he says, all of this amazing, awesome stuff that's happening to me, it means nothing because I have to see that stupid guy Mordecai. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that word. I have to see Mordecai every time I walk into the palace. And he's furious about it. And so his wife and his staff, they come up with this idea that Mordecai needs to die. He needs to get put on one of those poles that people are handing out, apparently. And so... Uh, then Haman's problem is he has to get permission from Xerxes because Mordecai works at the palace. And so he has to get permission from Xerxes to do this to Mordecai. So coincidentally, as it would just so happen, Xerxes that night in the palace can't sleep. And Xerxes does what any of us would do when we can't sleep. He has someone come in and read him a bedtime story. Except for the bedtime story he has is not Good Night Moon. He has someone come in. <laughs> He has someone come in and read him the history of himself. 
okay, why not? If you can get somebody to do that for you, that's awesome. So he has someone come in and read him the history of himself. And in hearing the history of himself, he is reminded of this episode where this guy Mordecai saved his life. And so Xerxes says to the reader, hey, did we ever do anything for this Mordecai? Did we send him a card or anything after he saved my life? And the bedtime reader is like, well, I don't know. It's not in the book, so I don't think so. So Xerxes is like, oh, we got to do something for Mordecai. Now, as it would just so happen, Haman's on his way into the palace to get permission to put Mordecai on a pole. Xerxes doesn't know this. So Xerxes says to his right-hand man, hey, Haman, right-hand man, what should I do for somebody who I wish to honor? And because of who Haman is, he thinks to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me, right? And so Haman is so full of himself and so in love with himself. And remember, the only thing he doesn't have is the number one position. So he says, well, I think that if you really want to honor someone, what you would do is you would get the king's robes, you would get the king's horse, you would dress this person in the robes and you would put this person on the horse and this horse would go through the city and you would, someone would shout, this is what the king does for someone the king wishes to honor. And Xerxes says, that is an outstanding idea. I think you should take every single piece of that plan and I think you should do it for Mordecai. Oh, right? Can you imagine like being a fly in that room? Is that just not so cringy to imagine like being there in that space and, and seeing how Haman would have experienced that? And so uh, verse 12 in chapter 6 tells us that Haman goes out and does this and he walks through the city with Mordecai dressed in the robes and on the horse and Haman has to yell, this is what the king does for someone the king wishes to honor. And verse 12 tells us then that Mordecai, after this is all over, because Mordecai is who he is, probably he couldn't have cared less. He goes back to work. But Haman goes home and he's completely dejected and completely humiliated. And he's completely infuriated and seething. And his anger and his hatred are probably burning hotter than they ever, ever have before. Now, we've got one more week in this story. You probably know how this turns out, just in case. I'm not going to totally give it away, but I will tell you. Someone does end up on that pole, but it ain't Mordecai, okay? So we've got this cast of characters from Esther. We've got these people that we look at. We've got Esther and the courage that she had to have to go before, uh, to go to King Xerxes. We can go ahead and go to the next slide here. Um, we've got Esther, we've got Mordecai, and we've got the courage that he had um, by doing what he knew was right and by not uh, of submitting and bowing to Haman when he knew that's what he wasn't supposed to do. So we've got these two people, a really exceptional character. And we've got the king, who in this story is kind of laughable, kind of easily manipulated. Um, and then we've got Haman. And Haman's just dark. And as I've said, even though he had literally everything, he was the second most powerful in the entire empire of Persia. Everything was at this guy's feet. But it was never, ever, ever going to be enough. It was never going to be enough for him. And so uh, we look at someone like Haman, we look at these other cast of characters, and we look at them and we're like, I don't know if I would have the courage of Esther. I don't know if I have the conviction of Mordecai. 
I'm pretty confident I'm doing better than Haman, am I right? Like, I can't even remember the last time. In fact, I don't think I've ever considered actually putting somebody on a pole. So, thumbs up for me. The problem with that is, first of all, comparing ourselves to other people is what we do all the time. It's human nature. It's who we are. It's what we do. Let's just own that for a second. The problem for us, if we say that we're someone who follows Jesus, the problem is that there isn't any human comparison that we get to make. Because the only comparison that we get to make isn't to somebody who puts people on wooden poles. The only comparison we get to make is to the person who willingly went to a wooden cross. That's the only comparison we get to make. And we know we're going to struggle with that because we know we're not going to be able to do it right because we know who we are, right? And we know what's going on. And so that in some ways makes the temptation to compare even that much stronger, And part of the reason we do that and part of what's going on underneath that is that we have it in our head that following Jesus is about a list of rules. It's about behavior modification. It's about this list of things that we're supposed to get right when we're following Jesus. We get this false idea in our head. And if you carry that all the way out, if you continue that thought experiment all the way out, you're going to have a couple of problems pretty early on. The first problem that we're going to have when we start to think that, that it's all about following the rules, it's all about behavior, is we're going to look around and we're going to see that there are plenty of people that we know, you know them, and they're not Christians, and they are very nice people. And they're more or less doing what they're supposed to do without even being religious, let alone Christian. You know them. So then we're kind of wondering, okay, well, if it's about following the rules, then what's up with the people who just seem to naturally get it right? And then the next problem that we're going to have, if we start to think that it's about the rules and doing well, doing things right, changing our behaviors, the next thing that we're going to find out when we look around, you know these people too, are the Christians who are not nice at all. You wouldn't invite them over for dinner because it would be unpleasant, Oh, there's all sorts of other things going on. And they're maybe on the outside, from the outside looking in, they appear to be doing everything right. But what they're doing when no one's looking doesn't line up. Because it's really, really, really hard to make Christianity about following rules and, when, and, and then to get it right. And then you start to feel like, oh, I got to try even harder to get it right because I know that on the inside, I'm not the kind of person who gets it right. On the inside, and and when people don't know about it, I'm making all these other mistakes, but I got to make it look like I'm getting it right because being a Christian is about following the rules, after all. Here's the thing. The boundaries that God gives us are really, really good. I am not saying that actions don't matter. They do. The difference between thinking something and carrying out and doing it, it matters. I totally get that. And like I said, the boundaries that God gave us are good. And God said, if you can do these things most of the time, honestly, things are going to go more or less okay. But if you think about the rules that God gave us, the first ones are about our relationship to him, which are no other gods, make God important, go to worship, have a Sabbath, and don't toss my name around like it doesn't mean anything. Now, other than having a Sabbath, going to worship, a lot of those things are heart things right? And those heart things then will feed into the rest of the others that come along. If you're getting the first couple ones right, not lying, not stealing, not cheating, not being envious, all that stuff, the rest of that will kind of fall into place. But it's a heart situation. And when we start to think that it's all about following the rules, we, uh, we start thinking that it's about what's on the outside. We start thinking about it's the external things that happen and not what's actually going on 
on the inside. Here's what I mean. So I, for the purposes of this demonstration, I am this cup of water. And I'm going along, and I'm minding my own business, and I am living my life, and things are going great. But then all of a sudden, somebody bumps into me. And water comes out of that cup. And it's our temptation to think that as we go along and someone bumps into us, that the reason the water came out was because of the person that bumped into us. Get ready for this, people. It's not the person that bumped into us. The reason water came out of this cup is because that's what's in there. And it wouldn't matter. Who bumped into us doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if this is coffee or orange juice or Diet Coke. <clears throat> what's in there is what's going to come out. And when I get bumped into, what spills out of me spills out of me because that's what's in there. And when you get bumped into, what spills out of you comes out of you because that's what's in there. <clears throat> and so that's why when Jesus, it made me thirsty, sorry. <laughs> so when Jesus is giving his very first sermon and He's talking to the people about, he's starting with behaviors because he knows that they understand behaviors. He knows that they've been told a list of behaviors. So he starts there, but what he's really getting at is what's inside. What's inside that then comes out. And so he says to them, uh, you can read about this in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 21 specifically. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Well, yeah, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that murder is one of those behaviors that nice people don't do. And then he goes on and he says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Jesus is getting at what's, going, what's in our cup. If we're filling our cup with gross stuff, with anger, with revenge, with hate, then that's what the real problem is. That's why it can, it doesn't always, but it can lead to a very permanent situation of taking someone's life when we are full of anger. Now, the hard part of that is, is that we realize that anger is an emotion that we are hardwired with. So we really resist being told that anger is a problem. And here's the deal. Anger on its own, we are hardwired with that. We come out of the factory with the ability to be angry. You don't have to teach a kid how to be angry. And we get angry when we feel like somebody else's will or somebody else is coming at us and it's going to mess with our agenda. It's going to mess with our stuff. That gives us an opportunity to kind of reflect on the situation. Are we doing the right thing? Or is there someone here who maybe wishes us harm? Anger is an emotion that serves us when it comes up and makes us aware of our surroundings and aware of our situations. And when it makes us aware of people being treated poorly who should not be treated poorly. That's when anger serves us. The anger that Jesus is talking about when he says, if you are even angry with someone, he was, he was giving this sermon. People had come from far and wide to hear what Jesus had to say. And he's like, if you're sitting here and you are stoking your anger with someone, that's the problem. If you're sitting here and you are filling your cup and you are ruminating about what you'd say to them if you could, or if you knew you could get away with it, what you would do to that person, or how you're gonna behave so that that person knows in no uncertain terms that you are so mad at them. One time, I was so mad with somebody in my family. <clears throat> do you know that I refused to fold their laundry? No. 
And I folded all the other laundry, but I left that person's laundry sit there on the couch. Because that's why I pull it out of the couch, pull it out of the dryer, put it on the couch, fold it. Goes on the ottoman, and then in theory, they're supposed to put it away. Um, Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But I was still mad at that person. I decided I was not going to fold their laundry. So as I folded the rest of the laundry and I'd pick up their things, nope, not going to fold it. (laughs) Feeding it. Filling my cup with all the reasons I was mad at that person. And then every time I walked by the couch and saw that laundry, I continued to feed it and continued to say, well, they are going to know that I am mad at them, aren't they? on purpose. Do you know why? <laughs> Do you know why this person is going to get, co- get coffee in here? Because by my calculations, they have gone through approximately 42 steps to make sure that it is coffee that lands in that bottom mug down there, right? Between the filter and the hot water and the whatever, all that. They have gone to a lot of work. There is no way anything other than coffee is coming out of that. And the exact same thing happens to us because we build this thing, we put this thing together where we're going to just in, think about how mad we are because if we don't stay mad, then who will know, right? It'll all be for nothing. Nobody will even know how egregious this was if we don't stay mad. So we feed it and we stoke it and we do it on purpose and our cup is so full. And then somebody else bumps into us. And it's not the person that we're pretty sure is responsible for this whole thing. It's somebody totally else. So maybe this is your coworker and you come home and your roommate or your spouse or your kid or your dog bumps into you and all of that anger that we very carefully built on purpose comes out on them. And now we have a a really serious problem because not only is that first relationship totally messed up because we've been filling our cup with that, but now these other relationships now they're going to be messed up too because then now that person has to decide how are they going to respond. Are they going to nurse anger or are they going to let it go? And that relationship is damaged. And then if they are feeling hurt and wounded because of that and that spills out onto somebody else and it just spilled out and now it's gone even further than it did before. And the whole time we're thinking that it's because of that person who made us so mad, but it's not. It's because it's what's in us. There's no way anything other than what was in us is going to come out. Uh, This week at West Des Moines uh, was the first session of Vacation Bible School. So we've been doing Bible School this week. Uh, That's Pastor Andy in the wig. And then the other angry-looking woman down there is, um, her name is Helga for the purpose of the skits. And um, (laughs) Helga talks with a Russian accent. My 18-year-old told me that I was slightly culturally insensitive. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um, she said I could still keep doing it, though, so okay. If, I, if my 18-year-old, the most highly offendable group of people in the history of the world, says it's okay, then it's probably fine. Anyway, so she's not here today, so I can say um, she, uh Anyway, so Helga speaks with a Russian accent. Helga is a bully is the thing. And the reason that Helga is a bully is because Helga has not yet met this Jesus character. By Thursday, she meets Jesus, and she's a much nicer person after that. Anyway, 
So we've been doing this all week. Next week, uh, Danny Householder has been paying, playing the part of another bully along with me. And he um, is the campus minister at Ames. He can't be here this week for sessions one or for, for the sessions that we're doing at West Des Moines. So we came, we needed to find somebody else to play a bully. And so I'm talking with Mark Brandt and I'm talking with Pastor Mike because they are the ones who write the skits. And we were tossing around names of people who could, who could potentially play the part of the bully. And a couple of names came up, and when these names would come up, uh, these two particular people, somebody would say, I don't know who it was, but, ah, I don't think they can play the part of a bully. They're too nice. Nobody will believe that they're a bully. <laughs> so a couple of things. I have been a part of VBS for 15 years. I don't remember ever having a female as a bully. So ladies, I am just breaking that glass ceiling all over the place, okay, <laughs> right, yeah. That's the first thing. But the second thing is I realized after that conversation <laughs> that when my name came up for Helga, nobody said, oh, no. <laughs> nobody will believe Pastor Amanda could be a bully. She's too nice. That never got said. <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, they're right. There are people in the world who are naturally very patient, very kind, very empathetic, very all of those wonderful, wonderful things. They just naturally are. <clears throat> There's the ones we say are sweet or nice. And then <laughs> there are people that are like me, and then there are people that are maybe, maybe like you, many of you in here as well. And the difference is, not necessarily naturally nice, but came to a realization at some point that what was coming out wasn't working. That what was in me and coming out was hurting people. That it was damaging the relationships that I was in. That it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for the people around me. I knew what to do, just like many of you who've had the same realization, knowing what to do isn't the issue. What's in there is the issue because what's in there is what will come out. And maybe many of you, like me, realized that the only person who could do anything about this was Jesus. And it was letting Jesus in to clean up some of that stuff, to dig some of that gross stuff out, to set an example and say, this, this is it over here. You want abundant life? Because I know the reason you're hanging on to all this anger is because you think it's serving you. The reason you're hanging on to this revenge is because you think it's serving you. You think it's what you have to do. Sometimes maybe even it is a little bit fun, but let's talk about how you really feel on the inside. <clears throat> and Jesus said, I know how you feel on the inside because it's what's coming out. But Jesus says, I want to give you abundant life. I want to give you a rich and satisfying life. And a rich and satisfying life comes from the relationships and the people that you spend the most of your time with. And so if what's coming out isn't serving those people, then life isn't gonna be all that wonderful. <clears throat> this is what we do at Vacation Bible School, and it's amazing. We are under the impression that we are setting all these things up and doing all these things so that the kids will get Jesus put into them. <clears throat> 
I worked in children's ministry for 10 years, uh, up until I went to seminary and, and for a little bit while I was in school. And every day I got out of bed and did children's ministry and I was so excited. My whole thing was to make sure that the kids that I had any influence on whatsoever, to make sure that they knew in the core of who they are that Jesus loves them so much. And that no matter what life is going to throw at them, because we all know it is going to throw stuff at them, but no matter what life throws, no matter what choices they make, that there is nothing that they can do to separate themselves from the love that Jesus has for them. And we do VBS with that in mind as well, to make sure that kids know that Jesus is truly as corny as it sounds. He is their best friend. He has got their back all the time, that it is nothing but good stuff that comes from Jesus. Jesus. And the strangest thing happens when we think that we are putting that into kids, I will be darned if it doesn't get into us too. If it doesn't get into us and if what then comes out of us doesn't begin to look a little bit more like Jesus. Peace in the midst of circumstances that are a disaster, that's Jesus in there, right? Grace, humility, perseverance, patience, persistence, whatever it is, when it used to be all about you and what felt good in the moment, and then those other things come out, that's Jesus in there because he's in there. We think that we're putting that into the kids during VBS and in actuality it comes in to us. This picture down here on the bottom, uh, there's all those kids in the atrium there at West Des Moines. They're not supposed to be there. The reason they're all there is because this was Wednesday right before lunch and uh, a huge storm came through. So we had to bring in hundreds of kids, hundreds of kids who were outside for snack and they all had to come in and have their snack in the atrium. <laughs> that should have been chaos. That should have been mayhem. All these kids who thought they were getting a snack, but now they had to wait for a little bit longer. But the volunteers, what I saw when I walked through there, what I saw coming out of people was nothing less than Jesus. I saw volunteers who didn't have to be there, like song leaders coming out of the woodwork to help play games with those kids. I saw uh, shepherds comforting the little ones who were scared of the storms. What was coming out was Jesus. And it was coming out because that's what's what is in there when we let Jesus be the one who tells us who we are. So we want to end today by giving you all a little taste of VBS, a little taste of the joy, a little taste of what it looks like to just have fun and surrender. And in the midst of all of that, to let a little bit of Jesus get in.